0: Abbott said on the platform formerly known as Twitter that Texas has bused over 35,000 migrants to cities such as D.C., New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles. The Los Angeles City Council voted to sue Abbott over the program last week, and last week another group of migrants was bused to Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in D.C. Support this local newscast and this station now by becoming a member at kpft.org. And thanks for tuning in to 90.1
1: KPFT Houston.
2: Looking out a dirty old window, down below the cars in the city go rushing by. I sit here alone.
3: All right, welcome to Growing Up in America here on KPFT Pacifica Radio. It's Claire Dutre hello dr bob sanborn yeah claire how you been doing i've been good have you been doing the show while
4: i've been away for a bit yeah i don't leave the show this is my this is it this is your (laughs) vacation when claire's (laughs) going
3: on vacation she says i'm doing the show so i know i call
4: in from all over the world just for y'all
3: i was out and about in um, uh, northern europe checking out the safety net for children and families up there Mm -hmm. and uh and figuring out, proving once and for all that they have a better social safety net than we do. <laughs>
4: yeah, <laughs> you don't say.
3: <laughs> so, hey, today we're going to have a great show. Welcome to Growing Up in America. Uh, this is a discussion on children, public policy. How do we as a community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids? We are a production of Children at Risk, the voice for the children of Texas. So for the next 60 minutes, Claire, we're going to like do it up, right? We have some good stuff going on. Uh, Shawnee Basie from uh, The Landing, mm-hmm. uh, doing some great work in the area of human trafficking, will be on the program. Uh, Liz Selig, who's out of No Houston, uh, No Austin, K-N-O-W. We're going to be talking about autism awareness and resources uh, some of the great work that liz is doing up there lizzie casciola will be with us she is with uh uh, Herc, the Houston Education Research Consortium out of Rice University's Kinder Institute, talking about some of the big research they're doing on public education. Big topic, right? Public education. Huge. You, you and I could go on and on on that, Yeah, right? hours. Yeah. And then we're going to check down on the border in El Paso with uh, Linda Corchada, who is the director of the Children's Immigration Network. She'll be here with us. We'll do our regular thumbs up, thumbs down segment coming up. And then date of the day, like zero, zero. Zero. What is that? What's your guess as to? That could be so many things in Texas. <laughs> it could, Amount it could. of interest in voting, zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Social safety nets, zero. Amount
4: passed to support public schools, zero. zero. <laughs>
3: yeah, very good. So we'll see what the number is. Uh, Layla Mazzali will be with us on that. First up, a little thumbs up, thumbs down.
4: Oh, he's a little remix oh, there. Oh, yeah.
3: A little, we're the kids. A little <laughs> Evolver. Yeah. yeah.
4: You oh, you know that one. Yeah.
3: <clears throat> hey, I know it all we because it we've week. been doing it so <laughs> often that we know all. Yeah, I'm very cool. I'm very hip, uh, Claire. <laughs> so thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, first off. You can go to Instagram. Have you ever done this? You go to Instagram and you can vote as well?
4: I have not, but I should. Yeah. How do you do that?
3: So you just get an Instagram? You just get an Instagram if you don't
4: have one. You create one now. And then you go to at children at risk, all lowercase, no spaces. So C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N-A-T-R-I-S-K. And you vote. And you get to vote on what it is. Go in the story. And so uh,
3: what we're voting on today is thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, should parents monitor their teens online activities and internet usage i have very strong opinions on this what are are you thinking on this one
4: um i do want to say we're defining teens as 13 to 17 which does sound obvious but also i feel like in this generation that's a huge age span seeing Mm. how fast kids are maturing um i don't know my thing is i i think parents Teens find a way. The internet's very vast, uh-huh. so over monitoring is just going to drive them into dark corners of the internet. They'll find avenues, and then um, there has to be some element of trust that you set. But I do think screen time, for one, is important, and there's a lot, a lot of information they're fed online that's pretty dangerous.
3: So I think, as I said, I have a strong opinion on this. Uh-huh. I feel like technology, you know, saying that. Uh, this is an invasion of privacy and, and that uh, we should let our kids sort of... Monitor. It's like going to Times Square in New York City and saying, well, I don't want to be a helicopter parent. I'm going to let my child do what they want. You know, this, is, this yeah. world of, of the internet is such a wild and woolly space that I say parents need to be super engaged. And I love the whole idea that, you know, I need to check your browser every evening and if it's blank... You're not going to be, you know, I'm taking your phone away. And this whole idea of, of monitoring, because I think kids like rules. They, they will say they don't, but kids want to Structure. live in a rule and, and structured in a world that there are some rules and they want their parents to have an interest in their well being. And so I say parents do need to sort of monitor, uh, and pay a lot of attention to what's going on with technology and the internet and their kids.
4: Yeah, it's there's a conversation to start on the vast internet that I helped a mom have with her child in Snapchat. Mm. Um, but it, it's hard because the debate was just kind of, do I want her to have access to something where the message disappears quickly? And I was like, I know teenagers, and she'll download and delete it as she as she will, and as you're checking. Um, And so it's better create one and you're monitoring her just by being your friend. Your kid's not going to post content when their mom's watching. So even if they have private stories, at least it's not to the open public. Privacy settings, ghost mode.
3: But yeah, I would say tricky. parents parents should learn as much as they can about what their children are yeah. engaged in. Use it as an opportunity to talk with your kids to yeah. communicate. What are you working on? What are you doing on online? Let me see how this works. Become a you know become partners in the whole thing. I think yeah. it's the way. Uh, it's a way for parents to monitor. So it's, yeah, uh,
4: and I'm thumbs up finding activities for your kids and spending time to get them off their phones. So it's not even a super trust issue so have a-, a
3: big thumbs up for me on monitoring i know and a medium sideways <laughs> thumb. i know i saw my you. friend and
4: her mom's relationship crumble with reading all of her texts so i think there is a median ground in this
3: yeah mom so didn't start yeah. if you start at the end when the child has had a lot of liberty that's fair that's fair then it's start gonna the be beginning. you need to start at the beginning no you need ipad to start kits. young you need to start before they're teenagers yeah right? just so. board
4: game kids yeah, <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs go. up board game. So usually, Claire, you
3: and I usually are in exact agreement on everything. Today, it's I a know, little they little got different, us on this one, a little different. So that's so that's good, very good. Hey, coming up in our next segment, we're going to be talking with uh, Liz Selig. I mean, uh, and uh, no, we're we're going with Shawnee. Shawnee's next. <laughs> Shawnee Basie, who is with uh, uh, the Landing. They do some marvelous work around human trafficking. We'll be right back with Shawnee Basie. <laughs> All right, we're moving into our human trafficking segment. Uh, Shawnee's on the line with us. She is the chief program officer for the Landing. Shawnee, did I get your last name right? Is it Basie or Bossy? Hey there, uh, Shawnee
0: Basie. So you got Basie,
3: right. very good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Shawnee, for those uh, for those who are listening who've never heard of the Landing, what's your sort of your elevator spiel on what is the Landing?
1: Yeah. So um,
0: the Landing, we exist to serve survivors of human trafficking, and commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, we've been around for since January uh, 2016, uh, and we operate three programs. Um, we operate a drop-in center for adults, and that's the program that we're mostly known for. Mm. Um, we also have a youth advocacy program where we're serving minor victims of trafficking in Harris and their surrounding counties, and then we do uh, victim outreach and we do that, you know, on the street or we do that online where we are, uh, we use a platform that scrapes sex ads and we um, are able to communicate with people
3: who might be being trafficked.
0: And, and so that's the short version of the landing and, you know, the things that we do.
3: And I have visited the drop-in center, right? That is uh, off of one of the main tracks in Houston. And when you think about uh, trafficking and prostitution in Houston, how much of it is is on sort of the walking track where people can drop in? I mean, what percentage do you think, Shawnee? And I know we don't know exact numbers, but your, your best guess?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know the exact amount and if anyone is familiar with the Bissonnet area or even, you know, local to Houston and seeing kind of the work being done by law enforcement in the area, um a lot of the street-based um prostitution, uh trafficking is is being reduced because of the efforts, you know, by law enforcement in the area. Um so I would assume a lot of the, you know, trafficking exploitation is going online. Wow. Um, even in 2020, you know, when the pandemic hit, we launched our online outreach campaign um, because street outreach had, um, you know, dwindled a bit. We weren't seeing as many people on the street, many victims on the street. Um, and so I, I would say a good 70 percent, if not more, um, of trafficking is happening, you know, online.
2: Wow.
4: Shani, we just talked a little bit about parents monitoring their child's phones, and I know with human trafficking, a lot of the myths and to be busted is the taken narrative and this dramatic um, kind of overstimulized picture that people have of human trafficking, and that has trickled a little bit online in parents expecting it only to happen on these dark corners of the web. What are some ways that y'all reach out to parents and just the community in general to inform them, especially in these online outreach programs?
1: Yeah, so, uh,
0: one of the ways that we engage with parents and families is through our youth advocacy program. So, so this is a program where we're serving, uh, minor victims of trafficking, um, who have already been exploited. So we're supporting families, um, and helping them safety plan. So that would look like us, you know, talking to the parents, talking to the youth about online safety, um, helping parents monitor, helping them with the skills they need to, you know, to Parent protectively, um, it is a really hard. It's a big challenge. You know, every kid has a cell phone um, or online at school or things like that. And so, a lot of the work we're doing with parents is is with the parents are on our you know that are, are the parents of the children that we're serving. Um, our advocates are advocates for the minors and the kids, but they're also really a family advocate where they're um, helping kids stay safe and helping the families um, you know work well with the kid and then. Additionally, in the community, we are, you know, we go into schools when we're invited. We go into community groups. Um, we go into, you know, churches where parents or caregivers um, are present, and we just kind of give them information about trafficking, um, the risks of being online, and, and some tools and some strategies on how to, um, you know, prevent exploitation.
3: Shani, over the years, uh, and you and I have both been involved in the fight against trafficking for many years, but uh, I, mm-hmm. I think the first op-ed I ever wrote was back in 2006, right, sort of alerting people to the fact that we had a lot of trafficking in Houston. Uh, over the years, we've seen a lot of it change and, and divisions emerge within the trafficking world, And but you are on the front lines. I mean, you get to see what's going on, and and what do you think of this The the dual narrative, which I don't think either one of them are wrong, but this idea that uh, there's uh, th- that there's no choice in becoming trafficked, and there's some choice in becoming trafficked. You know, th- you know how there's two groups that are sort of emerging. Where do you guys fall on that?
0: Mm, so the idea of choice in the yeah in the, with being exploited
3: and, and being a sex uh, worker, yeah,
0: and being a sex worker, yeah. Uh, that's an interesting question. I know. Uh, I know. Yeah. And that is something that is uh, really kind of on the forefront of the conversation in the anti-trafficking movement. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that we could kind of dissect it, but for us and what we see at the landing is, you know, those individuals who um, may, from what, you know, appears to the eye that they're choosing this life, we always say, well, what choices were available to this yeah. individual? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, all you have is bad choices, then you're going to have to select a bad choice. Um, and so, you know, choice is, is really relative. I mean, there's people who have a lot of privilege and a lot of things that are going on in the movement around sex work, sex trafficking, even the word sex work yeah. can be controversial. Right. You know, prostitution right. can be controversial depending on the community that you are talking to. Um, but there's a lot of talk around... Um, those who identify as sex workers oftentimes are those with the most privilege. Um, those who really do have more choice, um, who do have the ability agency and other resources, but when there are not other resources to provide for your family, um, when you are raised in generational, either prostitution, trafficking, poverty, have a lot of barriers, you know, choice is really limited. And so, um, you know, I think that's a relative yeah. thing. And I think oftentimes what we see is people that have more privilege are those, you know, the ones that are really promoting, um, you know, sex work is a viable,
3: right. uh, you know, field of work. Yeah. I think that's a good way to, to look at it too. Right. I mean, because when we see survivors, there's so often something that went wrong there. Right. I mean, and no doubt that some people may have chosen this, but, but, it just seems like the overwhelming majority of those that we find being trafficked or involved in uh prostitution uh sex work uh that there there wasn't a choice right it was just a tough little deal yeah Yeah,
0: yeah. we actually, um, we have an event coming up September 21st where we're bringing in a speaker who really, you know, up north, this conversation is really happening. Right, right. Um, And and we're bringing in a speaker named Melanie Thompson who's going to be presenting about, like, this this whole movement around sex worker rights and um, legalization, decriminalization, partial legalization of prostitution. So that would be interesting to
3: yeah. Shani, uh, during the last legislative session, not the most not the most recent one, but the one before, you know, Texas passed a big piece of legislation which was focused on going after the buyers rather than going after the victims. Uh, have you seen a difference in terms of what's happening on the street, what's happening on the Bissonnet track, uh, with some of the the women and men that you see in your drop-in center? Uh, is there did this piece of legislation make much of a difference?
0: Ooh, that's a good question and that's actually something that i've been trying to get more information about we have seen a decrease in street-based kind of work over in this area Mm -hmm. but i would attribute that to the efforts of law enforcement and and kind of the new things that they're doing in this and that i i don't have any data that shows that uh that legislation has been um I would say implemented. You know, I don't know. Um, so I would like to know. You know, if yeah. people have been charged, if buyers have really been charged and convicted with this felony. Um, you know, because people were celebrating that this legislation had passed, right. but then you know when it actually when it hits, you know, and actually works. So I'm not sure. I haven't seen. Well,
3: it's like empowered law enforcement. Happened. That's for sure. I mean, it's, it it gives law enforcement another tool.
4: Uh, to right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. That's right.
4: Yeah, even thinking to Shani, I worked a lot of vulnerable population of students. And so going back to your piece of um, the privilege of calling themselves the sex worker, those who identify even if students fell into any kind of situation like that it's very easy to fall vulnerable and so I worked with one organization whose name I'm blanking on and I apologize to them that because there was no healthy relationship class they were able to institute it as a student-led club and so any mm-hmm. way of seeing that information start to disseminate into schools and communities has been awesome and I owe I think we also owe a lot of this to information is being shared and it's breaking the narrative that it can't happen to me.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah we we have seen it you know, uh, it's the student led group or maybe that t- specific teacher, or th- uh counselor in the school that really is passionate about this and is, you know, creating space for students to learn about it.
3: Yeah. Well, Shanna, I feel like we could go on and on and we haven't even gotten to, uh, some of the stuff that's going on with survivors, which I think is, uh, um, is just real important work and some of the stuff you do. But I can say that, uh, of, of the number of groups in the greater Houston area that are working on this, uh, the landing is one of the great ones and work that you guys are doing, Shawnee, is fantastic. So thank you very much. And, uh, thanks for being on Growing Up in America today.
0: Yeah, Thanks for having me.
3: All right. Take care. You're listening to Growing Up in America. Coming back after the break, we're going to be talking with Liz Selig, who's with KNOW Austin Autism. No autism,
4: you tell the fight to look down. Cause if
0: you there, you see the glare of everyone you burn just to get there. It's
2: coming back around. And I keep my side of the street clean. You wouldn't know.
3: How many times can I make that mistake, Claire, do you think, you know, to, to look at the word autism and think it's Austin, right? So yeah. it's my it's word. It's a couple of letters off. Yeah. Uh, Liz Selig is with us. She is the executive director of No Autism and K-N-O-W Autism. Uh, she does great work. She's one of the nominees for Advocate of the Year uh, for her work with autism. Liz, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Very good, very good. Uh, for those of you of us, or for those that are listening that don't know about No Autism, Liz, give us a sort of the the quick speech, the brief speech on what you guys do.
5: So our organization is about ten years old, and we primarily provide direct financial assistance to families with a child on the autism spectrum. To um, help cover the costs of things such as, you know, uh, speech therapy, ABA therapy, occupational therapy, um, sometimes specialized private schools specifically for autism, diagnostic assistance to help make sure that individuals are indeed or do indeed um, have a diagnosis when appropriate, um, as well as providing funding for things such as adaptive swim lessons, uh, special needs camps, equine therapy, et cetera. And then we also have community partnerships established with some arts organizations, as well as some other nonprofits to provide resources to families, as well as, you know, the public on what autism is and kind of how to get through the autism journey with someone who's on the
3: spectrum. And when you look at uh, autism, um, you know, sort of in general, um, it seems like it's, you know, people are learning more and more about autism. You know, what percentage of kids are somewhere on the spectrum, would you say, Liz?
5: Well, um, the CDC's most recent data um, is indicates that it's one in 36 children is autistic. Wow. Um, you know and boys are four times more likely than girls to be on the spectrum um i think you know part of part of the numbers increasing is because a there's more awareness and uh, you know education so people kind of know in the sense what to some of the signs to look for and then i think also there's you know a higher prevalence of autism um,
1: as well so
5: it's kind of a Combination of factors contributing.
4: Yeah, I like what you said, and I would like you to speak more on those community partnerships. Thinking of this past session, hearing um, organizations come and plea for more funding or just fully funded programs for students with disabilities, and hearing those funding gaps was jarring. And so, how do those community partnerships trickle into schools and in supporting these students in education?
5: Well, I, we, we have a huge need, you know, Texas, uh, in my opinion has traditionally not done the best job of serving the special needs community. What and, and, and I think, I think that's for, you know, I don't think anyone intentionally sets out and says, how can we, you know, how can we screw over um, kids? I think people want to help, but I think it's a matter of, uh, you know, it's a matter of financial resources. It's a matter of teachers. It's a matter of education, uh, competing priorities, politics, uh, you know, et cetera, I, I think, you know, which is unfortunate because ultimately what it does is it causes problems and negatively impacts, you know, the child or the respective individual. Um, in terms of our partnership, so, we have um we have a partnership for example with theater under the stars mm. um and for the river program and that has a lot of individuals who are on the spectrum and have some other similar disabilities um and helps them you know kind of advance their and learn different parts of i'll say um becoming actors and uh dancing kind of the whole theatrical Um, creative process. Uh, We've worked with Houston Ballet in the past on their adaptive dance programs. We currently have a partnership with an organization called the Family to Family Network, which I think is one of the greatest nonprofits um, that's out there for individuals who have disabilities. And um, they provide a lot of resources and um, guidance and services to families who are kind of trying to navigate this journey with, you know, their eyes open, but yet their eyes closed. They don't know, you know, what all to ask for. Um, and I think that, you know, that also kind of plays into the whole special education, um, situation is, you know, parents are doing the best they can. And a lot of times they don't know that their child is entitled to you know xyz and so they assume that what they're getting is all that their child is uh qualifies for when in reality i unfortunately i think that's not always the case
3: liz i, I- I want to get back to this point that you made about Texas really and you know it's no no secret to anyone that when it comes to children and families Texas isn't doing the job that it needs to do in general but talk a little bit about if we were a state that did everything possible for children with autism uh-huh. what would we look like and what how would things be different for kids especially for those uh those kids that that have autism
5: I see. You know, that's a, it's a hard question to answer, but I can give you some comparisons. Um, so, I have a brother and um, who lives in Maryland, and they live right outside of DC. And Maryland uh, is a Democratic state, and I yeah. hate to say that it typically comes down to Republicans versus you know Democrats, but you know, yeah. not always. But but unfortunately in this instance, um, you know, they have a a lot more funding. So when my nephew was, uh, two and a half, you know, my sister-in-law found it much easier. Like there's a whole pathway and a whole, like through the school system, you contact them and they start the whole early childhood intervention. They like, they're more proactive. They are not as, it's not like you're having to I mean, you have to request the services, but if you don't know what to request, they provide you more resources. Um, And I feel like that his intervention, you know, for the whole, you know, nine months that I've seen, you know, he's receiving a lot of services at no charge because, you know, they pay for it through taxes, Uh, you know, great. Their property taxes are, are, um, you know, probably about the same as ours, but they do pay state income tax. They have additional revenue. Um, to help offset some of those um, supports. You know, just like anywhere in any state, you're going to have some schools that have good special education programs and some that don't have as many. Um, But, you know, Massachusetts is another one. They do a phenomenal job. They do a a phenomenal job of really, I think, overall providing support to individuals with disabilities, um, and whether that's through childhood or also through adulthood. Um, And you know, I, they pay, they have a lot, I mean, they they pay a ton more for taxes, but, you know, as I've been on this journey with my son, who's now 11, I would personally rather pay higher taxes to make sure that, you know, people like my child and also other individuals on the spectrum receive the services that, you know, they desperately need. And with, you know, the wealth gap widening you know, it becomes an even bigger, you know, disparity about what people can afford. And it's 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 a really big challenge.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, what we're asking, right, is for the state to make life easier for parents and for these many kids that uh, have autism and uh, uh there's, there's so many possibilities, and, and it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. We see how other places are doing yeah, right. a fine job with, uh, with these kids and with these families. And so, Liz, thank you very much for the work that you guys are doing with No Autism. Uh, and for so many people around the state that are working diligently uh, on this issue, right, to make sure that we bring attention to something that some people don't seem to be wanting to pay attention to. Uh, Liz Selig is with No Autism uh, here in Houston, and uh, thank you, Liz, for everything you do. We'll talk to you soon.
5: Thank you so much. All right, Thanks, Liz.
3: we'll be right back with our data of the day with Layla Mazzali.
4: We are moving on with our wonderful introduction to our very own Layla mazali leila how is california today uh california is beautiful <laughs> it's... Uh, beautiful and expensive as always perfect i That's was why, very not what
3: she was saying a couple of weeks ago when there was floods and everything because
4: <laughs> i'm asking and, and,
3: it's, <laughs> and it's obvious that Layla was not at burning man so you didn't yeah. go to Burning I Man, later.
4: Burning Man. I, no, I I was dry and mud free. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know Burning Man was as hip as it became. But oh, I it's hip! It's hip. Layla.
3: Have you ever been to Burning Man ever?
6: No, I never have. I think I was maybe interested in like my college days, and then since then, I, I'm not really a fan of like crowds. Um, oh yeah, so so it.
1: It. I avoid festivals.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and dust, right? And Burning yeah. Man uh, it was known for mud this year, but generally it's a lot of dust, right? So,
6: yeah. Yeah, a lot of dust. I mean, I like I like camping and stuff in the desert, but you know, dust
4: storms are not my favorite right. my yeah. favorite way to hang out. Yeah, I guess for the number of the day, there's a 0% chance you're going.
3: Zero. Well, that's right. The number is zero today. I
4: threw that in there, and it's going to take a dark turn because I read what it means.
3: (laughs) It's America. So my guess on the zero was the number of safety nets in Texas for our children. How does that – are we close, Layla?
6: I mean, I would say that's close. I think zero could go for a lot of things probably across the United States Um, this week. uh, Zero is the number of weeks of guaranteed paid leave. That people in the U.S. have after becoming parents.
3: Wow.
4: (laughs) And that's maternity, paternity, or paternal leave for the audience. That's
3: interesting. You know, uh, I mentioned at the top of the show that I just just got back from Northern Europe. And I was in Sweden, right? And uh, uh, a young woman that I met there was on uh, or about to go on maternity leave and she gets parental leave. She gets a year and a half. And, you know, my first reaction to that was like, Oh, come on. Right. How do you do a year and a half? <laughs> Can't get a week." And then, but any of us who know the research understand, boy, that year and a half is going to mean for, it's going to mean a well-adjusted young child. I mean, it's, there's yeah. some science behind this idea of doing uh, parental leave, but, uh, do we just not believe in science, Layla? Is that the deal?
2: Um,
6: I think maybe we just don't care. I, <laughs> I mean, well, when you go to Sweden, right, I mean, you see a lot of families with young children yeah. and it just seems like, I don't know, it's it's very accommodating. Um, public space, public transit is all very accommodating for families with young children. Um, and I mean, Sweden is actually ranked by UNICEF as the world's most family friendly country. Oh. Um, but it's actually only 17th for maternity leave, interestingly enough. Hmm. Um, but regardless, you know, that time of having time. to I, if, you're yourself, 17th,
3: if you're 17th, if you're 17th at we, a year and a half, I mean, I think I can't imagine what the, uh,
6: where do we
4: rank
3: <laughs> last
6: specifically, specifically for maternity leave. So it, It has contingencies, I think, when you look at the whole picture of parental leave as a whole. Yeah. Um, But yeah, the U.S. is definitely last as far as major economies go. I mean, no guaranteed parental leave or leaving it to the discretion of your employer. I mean, taking six weeks off from work, even if it's, you know, if it's unpaid, that's a major burden on families, especially when you have this very expensive new bundle of joy in your life.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we don't want the bundle of joy to be a bundle of hardship, and I think that's what That's what we're doing many times in this country is that, you know, uh, it just becomes a hardship for parents because there's no help around this, right? In terms of how do I make sure that my child gets off to a bright start? And, uh, you know, you mentioned in the developed world, I just happen to know there's only one other country that doesn't have parental leave in the whole world, and that's Papua New Guinea. So it's the United States and Papua New Guinea were the only two countries without any parental leave. It's, It's just sort of amazing.
6: Yeah, I mean, we, we can do it. We can do it. I mean, employers may not prefer it. But if we can subsidize it federally, I mean, the birth rate is declining. More and more people are choosing not to have children. And I think a major cause of that is financial hardship. Yeah, exactly.
4: yeah, and then I'm seeing it went down even in the negotiation from 12 to just four weeks of paid leave. That's if it passes. Yes, that, oh,
3: that's that it. Is, just <laughs>
4: then we'll actually. I'm reading your notes. It will, will be no longer one of six countries. So it's not just us and Papua New Guinea.
3: Oh wow! But the okay. only, We're one of six. The, <laughs> the, <major laughs> the bottom six. The only major economy. The only major economy. Wow, that's sort of amazing. And on on one final note, Layla, what would it, this mean for our country if we had? Uh, paid maternal leave i mean what what would that mean Um, in terms of we get that it's a it it relieves the moms but what what does it mean for our children
6: right i mean i think you mentioned earlier it's really important in those initial phases for brain development um, bonding all kinds of things i mean for children for children to have a healthy head start you know it's really important that they have contact with their parents, whether yeah. it's their mother or their father or any other guardian. I mean, it's it's really essential that kids have that in their first year of life.
3: Yeah. Layla Mazzali is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation and as always is our yes. data of the day super head. You know, she's able to give us all this great data. Thank you, Layla, very much and uh, look forward to talking to you again real soon.
2: Thanks, guys. All Thanks right. Either.
3: Coming up, Lizzie Casciola, she's with us. She is uh, out at the Houston Education Research Consortium, out at the Kinder Institute at Rice University. Stay tuned for Lizzie. We'll be talking a little bit about education research.
6: Got to be
2: a joker. He just do what he please. Shoot.
3: You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT, Pacifica Radio, 90.1 in Houston, and uh, Claire Dutre is here. I am. Bob Sanborn is here. Still and, here. And uh, we're, we're uh, trying to talk about children and children's policy. With us, Lizzie Casciola is the Associate Director of Regional Research at HERC, the Houston Education Research Consortium at Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research. My buddy, Lizzie. Lizzie, how you been doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Very, very good. Hey, what's the biggest piece of research that we could really delve into today, Lizzie, that you guys have been working on and that you're super interested in talking about?
7: Oh, you're going to make me choose. Um, I guess I'd like to talk about emergent bilinguals. That's the, one oh, of the biggest wow. studies that we've just concluded. Um, but I could also go with career and technical education if that's more interesting. To no, you. no.
3: I want to go with the bilinguals. Talk, talk a little bit about <laughs> that because I'm going to have a hundred questions for you, Lizzie.
7: Okay, great. So we just embarked on a study, a long-term study looking at At the time of the study, the state referred to students um, whose home language was something other than English as English learners. They've since changed the term to emergent bilinguals, Mm. and so we were focusing on long-term English learners, so not just the students who show up to school as um, English learners and quickly become English learners, but the kids who remain English learners for five or more years, um, an amount of time that you would expect them to, to school to have been able to make them English proficient. And so what we were seeing is that more and more students starting school were becoming long-term English learners. And so we we looked into that a little bit.
3: And what did you find when you looked into that?
7: Sure. So, I mean, it used to be like a third of English learners who start school in Texas public schools become long-term English learners. And now it's up to almost 70% statewide. Um, And so that means that kids who start elementary school as English learners are still uh, English learners in middle school. And Ah. it's really... Yes, and the, and the types of ling- linguistic support that students get in middle and high school is very different from what they get in elementary school. Um, so we were looking at uh, in the past past research past research has shown that their outcomes that they're at risk for negative academic outcomes. and so we did a more recent uh, study to to confirm that that unfortunately, that is still true. Yeah. and so more and more students are. Being placed at risk,
3: and and when you when we look at the whole student body uh, in Texas, what percentage of them are these emergent bilinguals, these English learners?
7: About a third of kids who begin um, school in Texas public schools are English learners. Um, wow. That percentage has remained the same. The number has increased, but so has overall enrollment uh, yeah. since the early two thousands.
3: And when we look overall at emergent uh, language english learners right bilingual kids um uh, how long does it take them i mean and you sort of were talking about how long does it take them to get up to speed and and more importantly what are the factors that help children sort of get up to speed because parents uh when we talk to parents they seem to be all over the place on what helps these kids
7: right well um I mean, if the goal—if we we're calling them emergent bilinguals—the goal should be to make them truly bilingual. So in their home language and in English. Yeah. And we've actually found, not just in our research, but plenty of other research, home language uh, is actually supports their English acquisition as well. Um, There's been a lot of uh, push towards dual language or dual immersion programs, uh, and there's a lot of evidence that that's the most effective way to teach students uh, to teach children both English and their home language so that they can become truly bilingual.
3: And, and those programs do very well, those dual language programs. I mean, even if you come in just as an English, only speaking English, you you tend to do quite, quite well academically, right?
7: Yes. And that would make sense um, as opposed to like an English immersion or English only instruction. Um, It just, it's more of a adjustment to the students um, to supporting their home language helps I'm sure, like socially and emotionally as well as academically. Yeah,
4: Yeah. let's see this conversation is very exciting to me, especially seeing students come in at the upper level grades um, as emergent bilinguals and being written off because they don't speak the language and aren't able to be put in AEA classes, for example, because of their time in the Mm -hmm. country. Um, Where have you seen some gaps or some opportunities in schools where they've supported teachers, um, where they've delved into Telpass and really used those results to help and support those students as they get older and still remain EBs?
7: Yeah, so I think uh, when talking to our district partners, they really wanted to push towards helping the parents understand, A, that their students are being classified as English learners, what that means, and why the TELPAS is an an, an important barrier uh, to overcome in order to become English proficient, or identified as English proficient, and therefore have access to advanced academic coursework. So I think there's A few approaches: partnering with the families to help them understand what this means in terms of the context of the school and their trajectories. But also, I'm not—I don't think there's an actual law that prevents English learners or emergent bilinguals from being in um, advanced academic programs. Mm. So, helping them, giving them the linguistic support they need to be in those academic, uh, academically advanced programs. Um, And to do so successfully is extremely important.
3: Lizzie, when we talk about emergent bilinguals, I think the first thing people in Texas think about those one third of kids that are entering school is that they're probably Latino, but that's not always the case. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, what is the percentage of, of that that are Latino and the percentage that are speaking other languages besides Spanish?
7: So it is still predominantly um, Spanish-speaking or Latino students. I, I would say it's between 85 and 90%. Yeah. Um, but especially in the Houston region, we have, like, a large number of um, other languages, Asian and Middle Eastern languages, I would say. I think Vietnamese might be the second most common language in the Houston area. So, yeah, there's, um, it's still predominantly Hispanic and Latino, Spanish-speaking. But there's a significant number of students who speak other languages, and their access to dual or dual immersion or dual language programs is very slim Mm.
3: uh,
7: for their home language.
3: And there's a lot of mixed research on this, but you know, I've seen some that sort of by the third generation. children who you know by the third generation immigrants are no longer speaking their native language they're mostly just speaking english and you just look at san antonio these days and you know latinos don't speak any spanish at all there is is there any are there good numbers on that lizzie i know that's probably not part of this research but in general do you know anything about this
7: i don't um i would imagine that's changing um as the demographics change, uh, but I'm not familiar with that research.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting thing, right? I think so many, you know, so many anti-immigrant groups always talk about, well, people need to learn English. But the fact of the matter is, is that over the generations, this is what happens, right? Especially in Texas, people end up speaking uh, speaking English. Claire, you have a final question for Lizzie?
4: Um, It's kind of going off. So looking at these interventions, was the most successful intervention in this middle school, high school learning gap parent involvement?
7: We didn't test that specifically, but our recommendation is, yeah, well, parenting or partnering with the parents, but also honestly helping them pass the TELPAS. There's there's a lot of reasons that aren't necessarily related to their English uh, proficiency that prevent kids from from passing the TELPAS. Um, there's been a lot of assessment over the years and how it's been assessed, so the the mark is moving. Um, so I think it's a combination of um, partnering with the parents, and, you know, supporting the students to kind of get through some of that red tape, um, in addition to, obviously, increasing their English comprehension. Wow.
3: Yeah. This is such an interesting that thing, so right? Exciting. I mean, I'm, uh, and I love this idea. I mean, so many times, you know, we we talk about how many kids, what percentage of our children are immigrants, but to hear across the state, a third of our children are emergent bilinguals, I mean, that's that's telling in terms of how uh, we may be sort of at one level an anti-immigrant state, but the reality is is that when we look at our schools, we are a pro-immigrant place, right? It's yeah. it's mm-hmm. uh, it's such an important thing. Lizzie Casciola yeah. uh, with us today. She's with Rice University. She's at uh, the HIRC, the houston education research consortium lizzie thank you very much for what you and your colleagues are doing and uh, i'd love to have you come back and talk about some other research if that would be okay sure. lizzie. yeah very good yeah absolutely very good thanks thank you very much for yeah, being on you. growing up in america we'll see you next time the prairie sky is
7: wide and high deep in the heart of texas the coyotes wail along the trail Deep in the heart
1: of Texas, the rabbits rush around
3: the brush. Deep in the heart of Texas. All right, let's go from the heart of Texas down to the Rio Grande border. So with us today, Linda Corchado. She's the director of the Children's Immigration Net- Network at Children at Risk. Linda, how are you doing? I'm doing
1: great. How are you, Dr. Bob? I'm doing
3: pretty well. Thank you very, very much. You know, I just got back from Europe. I had a really good time over there, Linda.
1: I'm so glad. I've, <laughs> I've been out here still at the border.
3: You know, I don't hear a waterfall today, Linda. <laughs> yeah, did she have a...
1: No, there's no waterfall
3: the <laughs> Oh, run. wow. You had some water, huh? So anyway, <laughs> hey, Linda, what's the what's the big news from the border these days right now?
1: Well, it's still Operation Lone Star and trying to understand what exactly is going on. You know, we had um, a reporter from the Houston Chronicle a few weeks ago talk about it because he he helped break the story um, thanks to a whistleblower. But, you know, what's alarming is that there's not a lot of accountability. We don't really know what's going on. And there's even some practices that are in contradiction. To what you know, we're being told the Texas Guard has been told not to do like separate families. In fact, there have been separations, so it's very troubling to see.
3: It seems like there was so much pushback, you know, during the Trump administration on family separation, uh, and now you have Greg Abbott and Operation Lone Star deciding that oh, this is an effective strategy. We're going to do family separation. It's almost like uh, they. They didn't realize the evil that was happening with family separation before, and just decided to go back to it.
1: Certainly not. It's it's very disturbing. We, you know, we had hoped that this would be the end of a chapter in American politics, but instead it's starting to shift towards state policies instead.
3: Yeah, it's ridiculous.
4: Yeah, are we looking to? I highly doubt it. But other states that uh, see immigration heavy flows, inflows, and replicating their kinder tactics, or are we puffing our chest more and just continuing these harmful ideologies? And moreover, do we see any other states looking to us to try to mimic it?
1: Well, I I mean, I would say you don't have to even look beyond beyond Texas. Um, You know, communities like in El Paso are still very welcoming and are very mobilized to look at immigrant families coming at the border and seeing how we can support and how we can support them get to their final destination with their families. Um, so it is happening. with The problem is that there's just so many efforts happening at the same time and not in concert with one another. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you look at the governor's efforts to bus migrants to different cities, um, those efforts looked much more sinister when there was no... Um, effort to work with welcoming mayors at those towns instead it seemed a lot more menacing than what we had hoped would happen um, so what we really need is is to look at cities like El Paso who are certainly leading with the models that have been successful and run away from you know these hurtful political tactics that are just hurting immigrant families and kids as we saw you know, with Operation Lone Star, where the Texas Guard has even been directed to refuse to provide aid to immigrant children that they encounter at the border.
3: Linda, when you look across the border and to see that what is across from you guys, I, I know at one point. We saw a lot of people waiting to get into the country. Uh, and then by using this little app that the Biden administration developed, there was sort of this slow trickle of people doing it sort of by the app, right? I'm, I want to apply for asylum. I'll show up at my time. But there were all these big camps across the border still as people waited their turn. How, how do those look today when you look across the border? Um,
1: well, you know, I think the big, the biggest, moment in time when we had those sorts of camps were under MPP when mm-hmm. migrants were forced to stay in Mexico to fight their asylum claims, and they would come to El Paso, for example, daily to show up to court, and they then they would go back to see that's what is. Mm. So that really made people stay and stay in really dangerous, precarious situations across the border. Um, but, you know, CBP1 app was meant to help, um, kind of direct traffic through yeah. the, the CBP ports, but now it, it's a huge, um, item for debate. It's, it's a huge key, uh, key court fight that the Biden administration is trying to, um, sort of maintain and ensure that the CBP1 app can be a focal part of, a, of processing asylum seekers, but many disagree and think that that actually, Hurts the process and could lead to situations like you're referring to, Doctor Bob, where migrants are forced to stay in Mexico. Sometimes live in squalor uh, just to get their next shot at, at uh, presenting at the CBP port.
4: Amazing. Yeah, tying a knot to throughout the conversations, and also because I bring everything back to schools, thinking of El Paso in particular, we point to El Paso, we point to the border of exemplar community school models. Um, How have you seen schools be these resource centers for immigrant and incoming students in particular?
1: Well, you know, I think what's interesting is that El Paso is different from Houston, where Houston is very much acclimated to welcoming newcomer students. This is a phenomena that is not new in in Houston, but it is newer in El Paso because El Paso is not is more so of a launching city where people come here but they always have a final destination. But now with more restrictive policies like what we're seeing in Florida for example, more migrants are actually starting to stay in El Paso and change um, that landscape for us, which is always great. Um, but what you're referring to, claire is is looking at you know El Paso's longstanding efforts to help emergent bilinguals become successful in the classroom. Um, and I think that's one area where we have done a, a really great job and and that's more so about to that that has more to do with the generations of immigrants living here, where you know, me, for example, even though, I've lived in this country, was born in this country. I spoke no English when it was time for me to enroll into pre-K. So that is the sort of challenge that educators are faced with on the border. It's, It's the kids like me who are bilingual, speak one language at home and are expected to speak something else outside of home. Um, and I think a huge success uh, for El Paso and border communities is that we celebrate our cultures, and that we also retain our teachers. You know, we have a great retention rate, which helps ensure that we form quality relationships with students.
4: Yeah.
3: When when you look at what's happening with um, uh, immigrants in our country right now, we have mayors of all the big cities where a lot of migrants have come saying, "Hey." president biden let's let's get work permits right because employers would like uh these populations to work the, the the people coming over themselves would love to work they don't want to be a burden on the system what are the chances linda uh and i know the bureaucracy is not in favor of this but what are the chances that we might get work permits for some of the migrants that are sort of waiting for their court cases to be held
1: I have to tell you, this gets me so excited, and this is one reason why I felt very hopeful to see so many other communities across the country start welcoming um, migrants these past few years, Um, and that's because more communities need to be aware of the realities that immigrants face in this country, and now in New York City, they are crystal clear aware. They know that not having that work permit is a significant barrier for immigrant families to get acclimated uh, to become independent and and protect their families and make sure that their needs get met. So on one hand, I'm thrilled. I think we need more partners at the table. We need more allies, and that's what we're seeing now and and what a great ally to have and the greater ally to have in the state of New York. Yeah. So I think it's certainly a positive step forward. And the light that I see at the end of the tunnel is Secretary his prior experience. You know, before being the secretary of DHS, he also ran USCIS, which is the agency in charge of uh, processing these work permits. So I feel like if there's any administration that could get such an ambitious, project done, it it must be this administration because Mayorkas really understands the bureaucracy at USCIS and actually think he's been doing a really great job in in cleaning shop there and making sure that more processes work better. Um, I think overall that's that's a big hope that we have, at least if, if we do get a second uh, term with, with the Biden administration, is seeing more of those sorts of changes happen.
3: Very good. I think we have like a minute for the final five, right? But how Thank many you. times, Linda, have you, because I know we have you as our anchor person a lot of times, right? <laughs> About 40 she's seven. ready to fly in so, so take ready. my spot. No, no, it's like our anchor, you know, the final leg, you know, gotcha. like, so uh, what, uh, what was your favorite uh, vacation that you've ever had, Linda?
1: Ever had. Oh, I've told you this. Um, I really (laughs) loved going to Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. Oh, yes. It's just totally random. But it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. I really enjoyed um, my trip to Africa. I thought it was really cool.
4: This is breaking off on the list, but my friend's been introducing me. So what is your favorite Mexican candy?
3: Oh, wow.
4: Mexican candy? Um,
1: Gosh, that's tough
4: there um, <laughs> my friend brought a, a it whole it bucket it? over for me so i've been chowing down <laughs> i like
1: that i think the little Good uh wafer the. cookies with like caramel inside those are yummy all yes.
3: right and i'll finish like up with a very similar favorite agua fresca what's your favorite yeah. agua fresca
1: Oh, limon. But it has to be like the lemon and cucumber agua fresca that makes my heart sing. Oh
3: wow! wow.
4: We'll cue it up in mm-hmm. Houston for
3: you. And, and this is like a culturally unaware <laughs> question, but horchata—that's not—is that that's not considered an agua fresca? That's just another type of drink, right?
1: I feel like it is. It's always like in the home of like all the rest of the Aguas. It's made to I stay think. there.
3: Okay. So that's not so bad then. Cause I'll well, be the next vote. Yeah, on our Instagram I podcast. love Horchata, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one of my favorite things. Linda Corchado is the head of the Children's Immigration Network. She is out in El Paso in the Rio Grande Valley. Thank you very much, Linda, for all the work you do, for all you and your colleagues are doing. And thanks for being on Growing Up in America today. Thank you. All righty. We'll talk to you soon. Claire, that's about it for us today, right? It was. That was a good one. So it was a good one, and we have more coming up. We're still going through some of the mayoral candidates we've had a few of them on uh, yeah. uh, yesterday at children arrest we interviewed uh, robert gallegos it was mm-hmm. very interesting i think we have gilbert garcia coming up next week yeah so uh, we're still going through all of this but there's so much going on with children and uh, we're in the process of getting this uh, podcast going as well I growing know. up in america the way we see it or the way it is i think way... we're on
4: youtube but oh, we we'll be on, on spotify YouTube. soon very so soon. don't worry
3: uh, Claire and I and so many others do this each and every week for, for children. children. See you next time on Growing Up in America.
0: I hopped up the plane at LAX with a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, access. Am I
2: going to fit in? Dumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Look to my See the Hollywood sign This is all so crazy Everybody seems so famous My tummy's turning and I'm feeling kind of home
1: This is Glenna Bell and you're listening to
3: 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston.
7: 90.1 KPFT, here's what our artists are saying about us. Carolyn Wonderland.
3: Well, when I
1: was a kid, that was a radio station that I would listen to at night under my pillow. So it was a beacon in the night. It's a, not just music, but it was information. It was stuff that I would have never heard in the suburbs.
7: Shelley King.
5: Well, KPFT em- embraced my my album and played it uh, regularly, and that really gave me uh, a big boost up getting started. Feels like a family.
2: Grant Peoples.
1: So I see KPFT as kind of a. A shining light that we can all turn to, you know, not just for entertainment, but for information and for perspective and for clarity. Buddy Mondlock.
3: So, yeah, please keep listening to KPFT. It's important, and they're the ones who are playing the kind of music that you love and that I love and that me and my friends make. They're kind of holding the torch for us. Hi, I'm Matt Harlan from right here in Houston, Texas. KPFT, special radio station. When I moved here, put it on the dial, and I don't think I've ever taken it off. 15 or so years I've been around.
7: Listen for their music and a whole lot more on KPFT 90.1 FM.
6: If you came across